This is Increment Vice. The podcast that explores Paul Thomas Anderson's inherent vice, one scene at a time, with your host, Travis Woods. And here was Doc on the Natch, caught in a low-level bummer he couldn't find a way out of, about how the psychedelic 60s, this little parenthesis of light, might close after all, and all be lost, taken back into darkness. That's a line from Inherent Vice, the novel. And here's our wayward host, thinking about it a lot these days, as the little parenthesis of light left in 2020 America seems slimmer and slimmer and slimmer. It's also a line that old PTA lamented leaving out of the film adaptation in an interview with today's guest, which is as good a place to start the conversation as any other, our host thinks as the dark shadow of the golden fang seems to loom taller and darker overall with every passing day. In an inherent Vice pre-release interview, writer-director Paul Thomas Anderson told today's guest, let me put it this way, the golden fang is still in business, and they've always been in business, and I don't see them getting out of business anytime soon, which is a drag, but maybe that's just the way that it is. And, stuck inside of L.A. with the quarantine blues again, watching the daily news, I'd be awfully hard-pressed not to agree with the guy. And as I said on the last episode, it's somewhat appropriate that as we finally descend into the murky depths of the Golden Fang plotline and Inherent Vice, so too, in real life, are we diving even deeper into the sunken horror of the year that is 2020. And guiding me through that funky fog today to a scene that, in my opinion, is the absolute, absolute, absolute most important in terms of the film's plot. Indeed, if the scene in which Doc and Shasta run in the rain to Neil Young's journey through the past is Inherent Vice's heart, today's scene with Doc and Coy whispering together in a Topanga Canyon kitchen is its soul. Guiding us to that is a film feature writer and reviewer for the LA Times, the man behind the Times' Indie Focus and Indie Focus screening series, and a writer with bylines in Film Comment, the New York Times, LA Weekly, Sight and Sound. Mark Olson, thanks for coming on Increment Vice. Yeah, no, thanks Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm, this is a movie I'm very excited to talk about. This is, I promise you, the nerdiest thing you will ever do, I assure you. You, uh, you you do not know me, so unfortunately that's not true. Oh, <laughs> well, how how are you doing? What are you watching during quarantine? Quarantine, excuse me. What are you what are you watching? I mean, I've been trying to like mix it up between like stuff that maybe feels like junkier and stuff that maybe feels a little headier that like you wouldn't normally get to. I've actually been finding myself watching Turner Classics quite a bit, like just checking out stuff that is just flying up there. I don't know that their programming now was created with any of this in mind, but they've been like throwing out a lot of bangers and just like really good. I mean, it's always good on Turner classics, but like it's, it just felt like it's, I feel like their programming over the last like month or so has just been, it's been particularly fierce. out, particularly outstanding. So it's been great to watch. And then 
in parallel to that, watch a lot of stuff on Criterion Channel, like from their streaming service. And so just like I've been trying to like get a good mix going of like headier stuff, more sort of like fun, turn my brain off stuff. Yeah, I've been trying to be a grown up and watch big kid stuff like The Lady from Shanghai. And I watched Shampoo over the weekend on, on the Criterion Channel. And then I got really, really stupid and I watched Fury Road, which I shouldn't have done because I just had bad dreams all night, like a six-year-old, given our current situation. But then I'm also watching the good, as you said, the chunky stuff. Like I watched West Craven's Deadly Friend. I don't know that one. Oh, God. Oh, it's so, so bad. It's just so bad. Um, and then I was I watched I watched Schrader's Cat People the other night. Just things that can turn my brain I off. just watched that, too, because it's funny. I, like... There were a couple of things. Uh, there was a handful of Schrader movies on the Criterion Channel that were like leaving at the end of March. Yeah. So I yeah. sort of like I sort of like uh, crammed a few things in and like you know strangely Paul Schrader like poet of isolation is really like the man for our times now like because I think his so many of his movies are about being alone, being isolated, feeling cut off, and so it's like strangely he's been leading the way you know to where we are right now for a long time. And if you follow anyone on Twitter as the thirsty, horny film Twitter uh, uh, cooped up uh, hormonal thirst builds and builds and builds, <clears throat> Cat People is actually a great film for our time. Uh, because, I mean, who doesn't feel like if they accidentally have sex with someone, they're going to turn into a wild fuck panther? Who, who doesn't feel that way? He, uh, he, I'll leave that to you. <laughs> You guys couldn't see it, but Mark was nodding emphatically. He knows what I'm talking about. He knows what I'm talking about. But I've also been watching. Uh, I've watched, been watching a lot of stuff like uh, Hawks's The Big Sleep, and I've been burning through the Rockford Files Blu-ray box set because I find myself missing Los Angeles right now so so much. Even though I'm in Los Angeles, I'm recording from a screening room in this city. I really can't do anything in it right now. And so I've been been watching a lot of L.A.-centric stuff uh, just just to get a feel for the city, even if it's not the city that it is anymore. And it's more just memories of L.A., which actually is it's very appropriate when we're talking about a little SoCal soft-boiled sunshine noir called Inherent Vice, because that's that's what this film feels like to me. It's a postcard of a time that we'll never get to experience. And... Normally, I like to begin an episode by asking my guest how they came to Inherit Vice. But with you, I already know the answer, and it's a pretty fascinating one. You did the, you did one of the earliest pre-release interviews for this film with PTA, if not the first. And what I think is so wild about that is a big part of the piece that you published with the LA Times is that it required you to essentially frame inherent vice for your readers and as myself someone who has written a giant 8,000 word essay on the movie for people after they've seen it and is also making a 40 something episode scene by scene by scene podcast dedicated to this movie how the hell do you frame and contextualize inherent vice for people who haven't even seen it yet and don't know what it is how did you do that? I mean, that's a challenge in a lot of the work that I do at the LA Times where we are sort of like introducing audiences, potential audiences to movies and that I think, you know, 
a lot of times you're writing with almost like two audiences in mind where you're thinking about people who don't know the first thing about even a filmmaker like Paul Thomas Anderson or certainly are you're sort of introducing people to know him to this new film of his to this latest work so you have to kind of say well what's the book about what is the story like you have to kind of just like try to like touch certain bases you know ring the bell on certain things and then also as someone who like for myself who is like a fan of Paul Thomas Anderson's work or like wanted to dig a little deeper you kind of got to like try to like push the ball a little further down the field like at the same time i don't know if that makes any sense no completely makes sense but i just again it's just a film this labyrinthine and complex and i'm you know when i've when i've written about it i've had to write these giant like novel length exegeses of the film and yet here you are with this immensely readable short piece that so captures everything that this movie is which is just it just blew my mind because of how how complex this movie is and you're like no nah, it's all right here i got it right here here's 3500 words here you go well that's i mean that i mean it's funny that the piece that i wrote it was part of the like fall movie preview for you know fall of i guess 2014 mm -hmm. when the movie was coming out and that was actually a fairly luxurious like piece for me like i i had a lot of pretty big word count it was ended up being the sort of like lead piece the cover piece of our fall movie movie preview and so it's it's funny for me that was like a sort of a more luxurious like I had more time to to stretch out a little bit which seemed appropriate for this movie in in particular but yeah I mean the the circumstances of that were were pretty exciting like I I can't exactly remember if in relation to when I saw the film and when I interviewed Paul Thomas Anderson when the New York Film Festival premiered had happened, because that was the world premiere of the of the movie and really the first sort of time it got shown to like big audiences. I, I want to say like I saw it around the time of the 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 New York Film Festival, but then I may have actually done the interview like after, but I could be wrong about that. But I saw it. I know you've talked a number of times to people about like when they first saw the movie. And I remember I saw it like, uh, you know, on the Warner Brothers lot in one of their screening rooms, not very many people in the room, but I remember, the thing I remember very vividly about it was it was early. Like it was either nine or 10 in the morning is when the screening began. Oh, wow. And so like, I wasn't like, I'm not really a morning person. I wasn't fully like awake. So like I was a little, you know, hazy when I was just getting started. <laughs> and then when it was over and like coming out of the screening room and just having this like, Burbank sunshine like smack you right in the face was like that was like one of the most memorable and kind of amazing things for me about that experience of seeing the the movie was just like seeing it at such an odd hour and this being like the perfect movie to see it like an off time like that when you walked out of the theater that first time how, did you like it did, did you feel like you had a grasp of the film or enjoyed it even I mean I definitely liked it I mean to me I think I really hooked into Joaquin's performance and how like dynamic and flaky it was because <laughs> and but like I don't know that I fully grasped the plot of the movie I mean I I got basically the component parts of what was going on but there was still some things I was a little hazy on and and I mean even as we're talking today there's stuff even in like my scene that I'm like not a hundred percent clear on and I think that's a big part of it because then when I did interview 
Paul Thomas Anderson. And it was something I remember he's, I heard him say multiple times when he was promoting the movie was that he, for him, he had this feeling of giggle and give in of just like, (laughs) sort of like, you're going to get a little lost. You're not going to totally get it, but like, just give yourself over to it. And that was his reaction to the book, I think. And then also he kind of liked the idea that it was sort of like when you get high and you're like a little uptight about it, that you have to just like chill out and like let it happen. (laughs) And so he wanted the movie to be that kind of experience. Yeah, that's exactly that's, that's actually that's, that's exactly what he said. He said that in your interview, and I'm gonna I'm gonna quote him. I'm gonna quote him right back to you uh, when he said uh, when he was trying to explain. Like, it seemed like he was almost trying to make the film both replicate the confusion that he had when reading the book, but also make you feel like that confusion was okay. And I and I and I love that idea. And how he presented that was he said, which is so weird. I'm telling you what he told you, but. I'm going to remind you, because maybe not everybody read this interview. Trying to make the movie feel how the book made me feel, or how Pynchon felt, in, or how Pynchon in general made me feel, there are many times where I feel lost, but never in a bad way. If I'm participating with the book on its own terms, and it's not giving me what I want it to give me, then maybe that's on me. Maybe I just need to giggle and give in a little bit. It's like getting high and being nervous about it. Just enjoy the high. Sit back and relax. Don't freak out. And you are right. I think, you know, and I've, I've, I've said it and various guests have said it throughout this show. It's that kind of that noir, that noir trope. Don't try to get your hands around the plot. The harder you try to understand, the less you'll, you'll, the less you'll know about what's going on. Because it's, it's so slippery and so elusive. That if you try to categorize what you're watching as you're watching it, which is funny because I'm doing a show about categorizing this movie, but if you if you try to categorize it as you're watching it, you've missed the entire film and you just get more and more lost. But what I also think is so interesting about this movie and why people like you and I come back to it is even if it is this weird, amorphous, multicolored fog in front of us that we can't define, it makes you feel something. And it just... I think that the best way to try to capture that or to to elucidate that is it's a film that makes you feel feel something, even if you don't know why. You just know that you like that feeling. And I think that people who are like us, who are afflicted with this obsession, we just keep coming back because we like the way it makes us feel. And if we're hyper obsessive, maybe we try to understand that and make a 40 something episode podcast about it. But it's all about trying to understand why does this movie this strange, almost anti-movie, as film crit Hulk said on the last episode, why does it make me feel this way? Why does it bring all this up within me? Well, I think it's one of the things that, to me, makes Anderson so interesting as a filmmaker and why, like, I listened to the episode uh, where you were talking to Jim Hemphill and you both were talking about how you kind of miss the, like, earlier Paul Thomas Anderson films since he's, you know, since he kind of reset himself maybe with punch drunk love and he's been making these increasingly sort of enigmatic films and that you know to me it's that you're never i think in part it's the way that they're released they usually come out somewhat shrouded in mystery so you don't totally know what they are or what they're about like before they come out but then like with inherent vice like i've responded to it initially for its 
goofier elements more as like a comedy. And I think that's how it was sold at the time. But what I've come to appreciate about it, the thing that kind of keeps bringing me back to it is how sad it is and how sort of like filled with this like melancholy and regret and how sort of retro like introspective of a movie it is where say like phantom thread everybody thought it was going to be this like weird sort of like fashion maybe slash horror slash sex movie and then it turned out to be a rom-com but it's like it was in secret like you had to like figure that <laughs> out you know what i mean so i think yeah. to me that's one of the things that's so exciting about anderson as a filmmaker in the way that he's developed is that his movies the way that they sort of like continually reveal themselves to you, they are all eminently rewatchable and like inherent vice is So, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I'm the kind of person I like to put movies on late at night, especially I tend to work oh, late yeah. at night. Oh, yeah. And so I like having them on and they're the kind of movies you can really dip in and out of, of as far as like paying attention to them or not paying attention to them. I think in part that's because like the music's always good. So they just sound good, <laughs> you know, so you can watch them, not watch them. And that's the things I, I get so excited about him as a filmmaker is just that these movies just continually are like revealing themselves to me. Oh yes, of course. I totally agree with that. And on, and even further, something that just occurred to me right now, so I'm going to say it and it might sound totally stupid or totally wrong, but we're going to, we're going to riff on it is, you know, you bring up the, the advertising and the, the, scarce pre-release information that we get on a PTA movie and something that I've also said throughout this show and uh, as have others is that the pre-release marketing for Inherent Vice I believe was the, the, these were the only series of trailers released for a PTA film post Magnolia that he himself did not cut they went to an outside marketing agency and so because of that instead of getting those very kind of odd, oblique, the master style PTA teasers and trailers, we got this 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 three-minute trailer that really makes the film look like a Zucker Brothers movie. And I've kind of complained about that because I said that I think that added to a lot of the public's general confusion, those, of, those who actually did go see the movie in theaters, because you go in thinking you're getting this broad, almost Lebowski-esque comedy, and instead it's this very melancholic meditation on time and loss and America and corruption and the nature of our country's soul, the nature of our own. But as you were saying that just now and about how you go, you went in expecting a comedy and then instead you, you got again, this very melancholic meditation. I almost wonder if in a way that helps a movie like inherent vice to go into it, thinking you're going to see one thing and then being so waylaid by what it truly is and what your mind had not been prepared to go in for that something about it hooks into you because of that, because it's not what you expected. You know, had, had we received a bunch of dour minimalist series of close-up uh, sequences, kind of a trailer that would be more maybe reflective of this film's tone. I feel like we would have gone to see it and been like, yeah, that was kind of the depressing stoner detective movie I expected to see. And it, we would, we maybe would have missed that feeling of surprise of walking out going, holy shit, that was sad. What, what the hell was that sex scene about? What was that? And I think in a way that might actually aid the film by going in expecting Lebowski and instead getting something 
I can't even compare it to another title because there's really nothing else like Inherent Vice. Yes and no, I think, because, I mean, on the one hand, like for, you know, real heads like us, like we're going to we're going to come back to these movies and we're going to give sure. them a second shot. But I think for, especially for general audiences, like you can't confuse people and throw them the way that Anderson does. And I think that's why, you know, The Master, Inherent Vice, Phantom Thread, like they don't, you know, do as well like at the box office as their like reputation maybe would lead you to think that they would or even could because people are just they they don't they don't get the movie they're walking in to see and like the people who would want the movie that it is like don't necessarily find it on you know first release it takes a while so it's like i think his his as his movies have become more enigmatic have become more like singular to him as a filmmaker they definitely become harder to market even though i feel like it's not as if he's become an insular filmmaker i still he still to me like feels like a very kind of popular filmmaker like he's someone who i feel like could be reaching a wide audience with something like inherent vice but it's just like it's so hard to explain what it is what it's about to really capture like what's great about it so it's like it's funny like because like the the sort of wacky like zucker abram zucker like elements of it like are great and like are something that's really fun and i'm like i'm so excited and happy that that stuff is in there but then it's also like it's not the whole film so like you know marketing is about simplifying things and so like they have to sort of make it seem like it's only that and so it's just like it's i mean it's a you know i'm I'm not a marketing person for a reason, but it's like it's because this is it's a cha- his movies are really challenging to try to explain what they are to sell to an audience. And so it does. It's interesting to me that like, you know, he has this really dedicated fan base who I think will like come to whatever he's bringing in part because of the fact that like you have no idea movie to movie what they're going to be like. It's probably not going to be like the movie that you were expecting it to be. Like he really is just like throwing you curveballs like all the time. He is. He totally is. Which is why I think he is the only person who really makes decent Paul Thomas Anderson movie trailers. Which I like. I mean, I, I was. I'm as hypnotized by the series of teasers and the trailers for The Master as I am. Uh, as I am the Master itself. Like there's there's something so hypnotizing, and he he knows his stuff to the marrow, which is why I would really be curious to see a PTA edited Inherent Vice trailer, as depressing as it would probably be. Well, on the the Blu-ray, you know, they have the the only really bonus features on the Blu-ray are these like I think it's four like alternate trailers, which you know I'm assuming that he was involved in in cutting, and as with the master, there's footage in those trailers that like is not nowhere else in the movie nowhere it's actually else. really interesting there's there's voiceover from you know joanna newsom as sort of liege mm-hmm. in fact some of the on one of the trailers there's voiceover from our like scene that we're going to talk about in a minute that is not in the movie but is in this trailer so it's like it's it's yeah i agree with you like his his vision of like what those movies are is is really interesting to see. But again, like if you're Warner Brothers and you're trying to reach like, <laughs> audience, possible it may not be the way to go. But it's funny. I don't know. You know, when the movie premiered at the New York Film Festival, they had this you know like a film festival press conference, and like pretty much a huge 
chunk of the cast, like apart from Reese Witherspoon, was was there. And you can, you know, the clips on YouTube, but for the um, yeah, I've seen it. The, yeah, the, for the channel for the Film Society of Lincoln Center, and actually Maya Rudolph. Like it's funny, like of all people, Paul Thomas Anderson's wife like says one of the most insightful things about Paul Thomas Anderson as a filmmaker. And I, I I wrote it down. I mean, she thinks she says that one of the things I love so much about Paul's work is that it's anything and everything, and yet it's always his. And I think that's such a great way to to talk about like what he does and that like you know movie to movie they're so different even within the movies themselves they're so sort of vibrant and dynamic and yet it always feels like it's unmistakably his like it's coming from from him you know exactly 100 percent. and i like how you in 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 your piece that came out uh that 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 pre-release interview i like how you contextualized it though and grouped inherent vice as part of this loose thematic trilogy that seemed to kind of erupt out of the middle of his body of work uh, between, or excuse me, encompassing There Will Be Blood, The Master, and then Inherent Vice, which on its surface seems like the film furthest from something like The Master and from something like There Will Be Blood with all of their you know Kubrickian coldness. But you you noted that these three films, when they when they're placed side by side, they create an extended survey of power and masculinity in the American 20th century with a special focus on the mythologies of Southern California. How do you see Vice fitting into that that loose body of work? Well, I think the way, you know, so there will be blood, you know, the character of Daniel Plainview is based somewhat on... Um, you know, the actual Doheny that like the name is, you yeah. know, the street is named after here and, and sort of other sort of, you know, like barons of industry of, of that time in some ways tying it into like Chinatown, the idea of like how Southern California like came to be, came to be developed. And then I think you move forward into the master and, and, you know, the extent to which it is or is not about L. Ron Hubbard, but it's about this more sort of like spiritual quest of the people maybe were going on through like the fifties into the early part of the sixties. And again, like it's like very rooted in Southern California. And then it's just moving forward in time to the late 1960s with, in, you know, and then 1970 with inherent vice and just an idea of like what it means to be a man, like how you kind of go about that in your daily life. And also, you know, the other two films, I mean, There Will Be Blood and The Master both are about men in power. And I think in some ways there's like this handoff in The Master from, you know, um, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character to the character played by Joaquin Phoenix, Freddie Quell. And then you can kind of, I mean, I always had this weird vision, this idea that like Freddie Quell sort of like like went off a wandering and like became Doc Sportello that like <laughs> I see those characters as like connected in in some way and so I think it just like it makes total sense to me that you could go from you know there will be blood to the master to inherent vice and then with inherent vice you kind of get to this like end times feeling of like well what does this really get us like what has this like grab for power like where do we end up with that and the fact i think even at the end of the movie which i just find so haunting 
of you know where what will happen next to to doc and where have you know all the things that he's seen all the things that he's learned like where will all that you know take him is like i just i find it like sad and terrifying and and haunting and so yeah i just to me that's the way that those those three films kind of all link up and it, it's funny that you say that it's it's only something i've be, begun to think about recently which is how indeed inherent vice does kind of fit into his ongoing portraiture of masculinity and power because i don't think it's a film i don't think vice is a film you think of immediately it's you know it's not like raging bull this this portrait of 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 broken masculinity but it is it is kind of a prismatic portrait in that it does show these kind of frayed strings of masculinity and as they're trying to cope with with end times level change whether it's someone whether it's just kind of a brutal misogynist like mickey wolfman and where he ends up as this very kind of shattered shattered man beneath the mood beneath the mood beneath the boot of even more powerful people or you have someone like koi harlingen who we're going to meet uh again today meet far more in depth though struggling to find a way to be a good father even if it's from a distance and then you have someone someone like doc who's just trying to do right or seems to think he is trying to do right by his old lady even if maybe he's also trying a little bit to control who she might be or main keep her as the woman he wants her to be or imagines her to be and it's i've seen this movie so many damn times it's only recently that i've begun to pick up on that and notice that and feel like this is actually of a piece with those other pta works that examine the exact same thing yeah to me it, it means so much that like doc is good at his job like i feel like he actually is like a pretty good detective and like for all that he as flaky as he is and sort of like out of it as he seems like i think he still like there's a certain professionalism that he has he takes a certain pride in it and like he's still like he kind of like he gets it done you know <laughs> well you know for someone who is as stoned as he is to do as well as he does he's actually a pretty damn ace detective i mean imagine if he was sober what he what he'd be able to pull off but the fact that he's taking notes that say stuff like something Spanish and paranoia alert and is still able to kind of sort of get it all together in the end, even though I get the sense that we probably understand the machinations of the thing even better than he does. But he, he is a damn good detective. He's good at his job. He, he's really good. What's the trailer say? Uh, he ain't a do-gooder, but he done good. That's Doc. Now, on that note, let's you and I take a break and let's watch these two strange men in a strange time meet in a strange place. And we're going to come back. We're going to try and deal with it because I am, I'm nervous about this scene because I feel like this is one of the most complex and certainly the most, I think central from a, from a plot point of view, one of the, it is the core of the film. It is the centralized pivot point in which all the lines of force in the film they coalesce around this one beat right here. And so no pressure, no pressure, Mark. But we're going to watch that, and we're going to try and talk about it. Look at there. Remember me, Larry Sportello's uh, Stone Turn Table magazine? You um, asked me to uh, look into that um, vehicle. 
Yeah, what was the um, the make and model that you looked at again? Uh, you were asking about that older type of VW with the, the hearts and bluebirds. And, and any, any replacement parts? None I could see. You didn't see any replacement? What about street legal? Was it any hassles with registration? It didn't, uh, didn't seem to be. Looks like she's been staying clean, too. How'd she do it? I don't know. She's, uh, back teaching is all she said. Mm, public health, drug awareness, something like that. Where? Where? I don't know. She didn't say. It didn't matter. No way I could ever go back to them. All right, man. Look, you, you can't go back to them. Oh, because what? Why? Because it would be my ass and my family. Did you know that when you signed up? All I knew was we couldn't do each other any good staying together. The baby looked like shit, getting worse every day. We are just getting fucked up and sitting there and saying, well, we gotta do something. You're dragging us me down and just... Listen, I'm not asking you to give away any secrets here, but I think I saw you on the tube at a rally for Nixon. And your question is, which side am I on? These people here have money. It's not like those Bible freaks that go up and down the beach, like, screaming at you. They really want to help. I thought it was something good to do for my country. As stupid as that sounds, but what I really found out was they just want to, like, use us and keep the membership in line. My country, right or wrong, with Vietnam going on, it's just fucking crazy. Suppose your mom was on smack. My mom? Yeah, what would you do? Wouldn't you try to help her? Yeah, I think... Well, Are you saying that the U.S. is somebody's mom? And she's, um, strung out? wouldn't buy that. I don't belong here, man. Uh, do you get the feeling you're out of here someplace Yeah, else? back where I was would be nice. <sighs> so if I did just run a fast check and happen to find some angle that maybe you haven't thought of, I said nothing personal, but there's too much you haven't thought of. I can dig you trying to chase me off this, but whatever it is that you're constantly, I'm out here on the outside of it. And I can uh, you know, move in ways that you may not be able to. Shh, how'd the baby look? Amethyst. <laughs> Sweetie pie. She look good. <laughs> no sign of them little kid blues. Little kid blues? No, that happens. They get that. Uh, no, no, I can see. You saw it a little bit. I blew this solo, man. It's like being stuck with these people. Where did it come from? Hey, come on, give me a glimpse here, man. Who set you up with these people? You know, when I first started snitching, I realized how often people ask questions they already know the answers to. They just want to hear it from another voice, like one outside their head. You better 
So, the first thing I want to talk about here, before we start wading too deep into the super, super heady thematic waters of this this entire sequence, is how the construction of this scene is not as it appears in either the book or the script, which is something you actually got some insight on from producer Joanne Salar. Uh, yeah, so when I when I was writing the story back when the movie was coming out, I, t- I talked to uh, Paul's producer Joanne, and and she said how there had been an initial they'd shot it in a teepee, and that uh, <laughs> and after they were done, uh, PTA just wasn't happy with the the scene, and so they actually kind of like brought Owen back. I mean, I don't know if they had to get a different location or the same location, and they just shot it again. And so the version that we see, you know, with this sort of like slow push in, this very quiet conversation between the two of them was not the way that it was originally conceived. Although now it seems like it's hard to imagine it any other way, because it's interesting to me to hear you say earlier that, you know, you see this as like such a centerpiece scene in the movie, because I think, again, when you first watch this movie, you think you're watching the story of Doc and Shasta. And yeah. so the like the story of Koi Harlingen and Hope Harlingen is like confusing and like feels like this extraneous sidebar. But then as you kind of like grapple with the movie more, maybe watch it again, like you realize how sort of like central their story really is. And that this to me, one of the things I find so interesting about Doc and Koi is it's like they're two like fellow travelers. Like I think like from the scene that when you see the two of them in the, when they talk outside the the nightclub in that fog scene. And then when they meet here, like they're two guys that like basically like meet for the first time and seem to understand each other very clearly. Like they really like size each other up and kind of like know where they're both at. Like I think they've both been through some of the same stuff. They both feel like, Maybe they've been a little bit let down by the counterculture or they've kind of been like in some ways like spit out by the man. And so I think that, you know, getting to this scene where they're talking at the at the Topanga party, it's like they, it's two guys that like don't have to BS each other, don't have to posture in any way. They can just be really real with each other in a way that like they aren't with very many other people in the in the story. You're right. And that's I think something that marks the three primary scenes in which we see these two men or see these two men speak to each other. There's the scene in the fog. There's the scene here. And then there's the scene later in doc's car outside the Harlingen home. Spoiler alert. Um, But uh, each conversation is marked by a quiet and a whispered intimacy 
that in a film that is essentially a daisy chain of sequences in which Doc is talking to someone else and just getting information downloaded or machine gunned at him, everyone's either rat-a-tat-tatting like Jade or like Penny or they're they're just kind of brutally hammering him with information like Bigfoot or being super wacky like like uh, Martin Short or being really dead and cold like Adrian Prussia or Crocker Fenway. Coy Harlingen is the only character that really, really speaks to Doc. Not, not with just intimacy, because certainly Sordelige and Shasta do the same, but there's a, as you said, there's a kind of knowing between them. There's a knowing whisper. I don't have to speak any louder than this, because I know you're going to hear what I have to say. And that's something that we spoke about in the last episode, and the episode before that with uh, Karina Longworth, which is how these two men, they really mirror one another in so many ways. Just as you said, uh, there's there's that scene where uh, he, Doc and Penny are watching him on TV and his alias is Rick Doppel, which is kind of a groaner of a, uh, of a pseudonym, but it's pension. You can't question the madness. But uh, he is. But what of... else are you gonna call the guy? <laughs> he he is he is Doc's doppelganger in a way. In that, you know, they're both trying to do right by Hope and Amethyst, and they're both kind of two undercover agents meeting in this scene, portraying two different people. And as you said, you know, like you felt like they're kind of spit out by the man. I actually feel like, you know, they're they're two hippies that are no longer a part of the counterculture. Something has soured within their own counterculture and they no longer have a home there. And they are, they're kind of like these two men without a country who are obsessing about the end of their country vis-a-vis their own private personal traumas. And there's, there's something fascinating and hypnotic about that, but it's certainly, I think something you don't get the first time you watch it. But the more you do, the more I, I think you do see that this is the central scene of the movie. This lays everything out on a plot level and a theme level as to what inherent vice is. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, and, and, and the performances by both of them, I mean, it's, you know, you said like they're both whispering in this way cause they're being kind of furtive cause they're nervous about being overheard at the party. But then as a viewer that makes you kind of like sit up and lean in a little bit too. And, and so the, like the scene for as sort of like quiet as it is, it just like, it really, just draws you in well speaking of drawing you in that goes back to to what you were saying at the top uh of our post scene discussion here that this was not originally constructed to be shot this way it was originally shot in a tp <laughs> and that's because uh, in the book this conversation with koi is broken up uh across a, a period of days when doc goes to the topanga house in the book he sees Koi recording uh, a sax line in in the studio that's inside the house. And he comes in and he basically has the line about, hey, I checked on that car. And yeah, it's all street legal. There's no problems. She's looking good. And essentially, the conversation ends right there because people are eavesdropping uh, because there's fang operatives everywhere. So Doc just leaves. He just says that. There's none of the stuff about America being a mother strung out on heroin and suicidally depressed and you need to talk to Shasta Faye. None of that's in there. And then it skips uh skip later down to when Doc 
infiltrates the Criscylodon Institute and he sees Koi there, that's when Koi leads him into a teepee and they have the remainder of this conversation. And what's interesting to me is how this is the second time that I'm aware of that PTA did a scramble like this where they're speaking of mirroring and of doppelgangers. There is a doppel sequence earlier in the film when Doc meets up with Penny Kimball outside the glass house in the book and in the script. They go sit down at a diner and they have the it's her it's her first scene in the film. And they have that that kind of very Howard Hoxie, his girl Friday kind of back and forth. They shot that at a diner. It was all fine. And PTA was bored out of his mind. He hated it. He hated every bit of it. And then as he's trying to figure out what the hell to do, because he's already wasted half a day shooting this, he sees a bench outside. And he's like, you know what? Go sit on the bench. We'll do it in one take. And so we have these two characters sitting next to each other on a bench with a very, very slow, slow, slow push in that where Ellswood is creeping in on them so slowly, you don't realize it's happening until you're basically teetering and falling into their pores in their face. And what I think is interesting is he basically does that all over again here where he didn't like the teepee. He didn't like the way it looked. So he just has these two characters sit next to each other again. Yeah, they sit next to each other and then the camera just slowly, slowly pushes in once again. I have no idea if there's any significance to that whatsoever, but I do... I'm intrigued that that is his go-to, here's how I'm going to fix the scene uh, trick. Well, I think it's interesting, though, just from like a production standpoint, that he had the kind of luxury of being able to do that, that also he, you know, is sort of maybe enough of a self-editor to know when things just like flat out aren't working and he needs to kind of like reconceive a scene It's in its entirety. Like I just, there's something about like just knowing that he was like, able to do that in a practical sense but also open enough to doing that in an artistic sense that i think is to me really intriguing especially when you think of the earlier work it's like boogie nights or magnolia where there's something so like banged out of concrete about those those movies (laughs) like they feel really like sure of themselves and to think of him reaching a place where he's like you know trying it this way trying it that way i mean again that New York Film Festival, you know, press conference. It's funny, you know, everyone keeps talking. Uh, the actors are kind of playfully talking among themselves about how chaotic they they felt the shoot was. I mean, that was the word a lot of different people used. But actually, it was Jenna Malone is the one, and you know, she says this great thing where she says, "The logic becomes the chaos, and the chaos becomes the logic." That like somehow there was this just like atmosphere or vibe that he was creating on set that for as much as like it may have seemed a little ragtag like there still was like a vision there and he was going for something but it wasn't as if he like knew what he wanted like he was finding something as they were making the movie you're right and that that phrase the finding the chaos and the logic and the logic and the chaos even in a scene as muted as this one is compared to say you know the whip pans of something like uh his earlier work i like what i love what jason bailey of a former a prior guest said when he said you know the first the first three or four films of pta were made by coke kid and everything there will be blood onward has been made by weed dad as he's grown up but that 
finding the chaos in the logic and the logic in the chaos, I think applies here because when you really start to to dig into it on a scene by scene basis, especially this one, you see that there is an internal logic, that there is a method to the madness. And, you know, I was talking about that slow, slow, slow push in that that Ellswick camera move that is so slow, it's almost imperceptible. You almost don't realize there's been a close up until it's over and you realize how much of these men's two heads are just crammed into the frame. And I think that find, to find the logic in that or to, to see the, the method in that is as you're watching it, you realize that that slow push in, it mirrors the scene's entire dramatic and thematic construction. Just as the camera is slowly pushing in, so gradually are we pushing past Doc and Coy's personal conversation in a very granular way into a conversation that opens up into these broader, grander themes of a broken America that's sending kids off to die in the jungle and how there's something suicidal about that, that, that America cannot stop. The... I don't know if he did it just on the fly or, or what, but he basically constructed a scene that mirrors exactly what these two men are talking about. Yeah, because I think also the way, you know, at the beginning of the conversation, like when they're having this kind of enigmatic, you know, talking about the the car and that kind of thing, like where the, you know, they're elliptically talking about hope. <laughs> Which is so great. No, no that street it, legal, street legal. It's like no you, as, as the camera comes in, as like it draws you as a viewer into the conversation, we now know kind of what they're talking about. Like basically like we're like on their wavelength yeah. when they're like getting deeper into the conversation. And so I think like the way that, you know, we're like brought into that conversation as viewers is like really exciting. And again, it's so astonishing how something that seems really simple and like kind of like a nothing scene in some ways the first time you see it that then you later realize or like on you know subsequent viewings you realize what a, like a dynamic scene this really is yeah you know i i'd read the book before i'd seen the film and i love the book i really enjoy it but even when i was reading the book i never felt anything for the harlingens you know it's kind of a cold book it, 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 as warm as the film is the book is it's quite chilly and very angry as for as funny as it is. But the Harlingens, I always viewed in the book as, oh, this is just, this is just sar uh, sarcastic, satirical riffage on the detective story. Because, of course, there's like five concurrent plots. Because, of course, Pynchon would do his take on the it's all one case by having 50 goddamn cases in this thing. And this is just one of them. It's about a hippie family of idiots. And... You know, Coy and Hope are not portrayed as beautifically in the book as they kind of end up in the film. The book, it's almost kind of mean. No, I want to say mean, but it's it's definitely not impressed with the Harlingens as 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 a family. And so when I went into this, I will admit that I was as much as I loved the film even the first time out, this is one of the moments where I did kind of tap the brakes a little bit and go, why is so much visual real estate being given over to this conversation? Like, Owen Wilson's great, but is he this great? Like, is there a reason to stop the film on a dime? Why? Why do this? And yeah, but the more I watch the film, 
the more to me the Harlingens seem like the entire backbone to this film. There is there's no other organizing principle. They are the story. As much as I love Doc and Shasta and I want this to be a romance, it's really about saving this one American family. And I don't think you catch that the first time through. Yeah, and it's interesting that the the um in the book, and I mean I've heard you talk about this before, like you don't that final scene when you see Doc sort of deliver Coy back to hope like that that scene is not in the book but i think it really it shows the emphasis that anderson wants to put on that that relationship and on that like family reunion by the fact that like he he gives you that scene in a much bigger sort of like vision than what you get from the book oh god and i know that that scene is not this scene but we got to talk about what a wonderful emotional sweet teary-eyed beautiful moment that is and i love that he gives that to us Anderson in a way that Pinchon just just doesn't or can't because if if this scene here is what if this scene is what the film is about then that scene is what it's all been for that's what it's all been for is to to deliver this man back to his family to put this one family right when all of this when all everything else is going to hell the country's falling apart and the fang is as Anderson himself says has always been there. And it's probably always going to be there. Putting this one family together is such a meaningful act. And it all starts right here. And I, I, you know, I'm angry at my, my, my younger self for not getting that the first time through, because without this scene, the movie makes zero sense whatsoever. Even the romance, the, the there's, there's, there's no reason for anything else in this movie to be happening without this scene. And without that delivery of Koi at the end. I know I, I, this brings to mind that I have a question for you and that among the kind of the apocrypha around the movie has to do with the, the Topanga scene with Doc and Coy. Some people think that if there is a pension cameo in the movie, it's in this scene that like the way that they're seated, they're, they're in front of this kind of frosted glass and you can sort yeah. of see these figures going by. And at one point, this older looking man like goes by, sort of pauses and kind of looks at them. <laughs> looks right at the camera. And the then keeps going. Through. And yeah. some people think that, that if Pynchon's in the movie, that might be where Pynchon's in the movie. What do you think? Well, all right. You see that character earlier in the, the sequence when Doc is meandering through. I cannot, for the last, God, you know, what a horrible host I am for not remembering. I cannot remember if you see him in the film proper or if you see him in that that great deleted scenes short film package mm -hmm. everything everything in this dream that's on the blu-ray which by the way really quick if you're listening pta please please give us more in the supplements package than just a deleted i, I love that deleted scenes short film i love it please go back to giving us commentaries or or like the making of movie that you did for magnolia please pta i beg of you that's but see, a, but I think that's one of those things where that I know it that makes in and of itself know, is know, like his development and where he's you know from who he was to kind of who he is. I mean, it's like he's it, weed dad now. I get it. I get it. But no, but I mean, even like the the way his relationship to his own DVD like <laughs> nerdism, I you know what I mean? Like I think yeah. like shows like yeah. where he's like where he's gotten to. I get it. I get it. All right. Well, hey, you know, I, I know, I know I told you. Because the you other all. thing is, the other thing is that there's like in those deleted scenes, you know, those sort of like whatever they are, that there's like one bit that's not in the movie that 
it doc is talking to some man with long hair and you just see his <laughs> back and i've always felt like that might be the pinchon man okay quick digression no that's not thomas pinchon there is a section in the book <laughs> um and god i'm gonna be a horrible host because i don't remember specifically if it's george washington or thomas jefferson i think it's jefferson um at a at a restaurant that doc frequents there is a portrait of thomas jefferson and every once in a while thomas jefferson will come to life and give doc advice and that's that's what that sequence is is it's is it's Je- and again i can't remember if it's jefferson or washington because again i'm a horrible horrible host but um yeah that, it's basically that's a sequence in which one of our forefathers is trying to explain to doc that you cannot trust these people these 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 fang folks there's something wrong with them and they're doing something horrible to the country that i helped create and you've you you have to look out for these people. That's that's what that sequence is. And that, that is not that's not pension. Um and really quickly, I was gonna say, I know I told you off air, feel free to interject and interrupt, but how dare you disagree with me? How dare you disagree with me on my own show? That said, moving back to where we were, the I cannot remember if you see in the Topanga House sequence. This very pension looking fellow. I cannot remember if you see him in the film proper or if it's in that clips package called everything in the stream but in one of the two you do see him in the crowd of the house party and when you see him you see he is played by a a man who is much 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 younger than thomas pension would be in 2014 that said no no one else like he is not a man of the 60s whoever this character is is not a man of the 1960s he looks just like thomas pension looked in that really really horrible a uh, moment in 90s pop culture where CNN tracked him down and got a picture of him walking on the street with a family member. And I know I'm horrible because I've, I've looked at that too. But that is exactly... that. that there's no way this character is not modeled after Pynchon. And I think it's meant to just be a wry, silly, Pynchon-esque nod that we see him lurking around in the back. I have a theory that he is one of the policemen at the Wolfman's ha- the Wolfman residence during that big pool party in the background, specifically because Josh Brolin has said that Pynchon was on the set the same day he was. Brolin was on set that day because that's where he beats up Doc outside on the car. And he also mentioned it was a big crowd scene and that no one else on the set besides PTA knew that that was Pynchon. There aren't a lot of big crowd scenes that... Bigfoot is it besides that one. So that's that's my money. Oh, I, I think that this character is just meant to be kind of a wry winking nod. Uh, it's also it's it's, it's kind of an odd con- connection to another death of the 60s stoner movie in which Benicio del Toro plays a lawyer is there's that bit in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas where the real Hunter Thompson is sitting in a background scene and it looks right at the camera. Of course, that film actually says, holy shit, there I am. Uh, but no, I don't think that that's pension. Although I do love that in this most serious and heavy of scenes in the film, aside from the sex scene, that it is a very both pension-esque and, and, and Anderson-esque thing, I think, to undercut the severity of this moment by basically having Thomas Pynchon cosplay walk around in the background and wink at the camera. There's something that feels very appropriate about that to me. Because that was one thing when I when I did interview... Anderson for inherent vice. Oh my God. Did you ask? Did you, I mean, he, he allowed no pension talk. Cause I, (laughs) I basically asked like 
did you consult with him? Did you know? And he was like, wouldn't answer. I asked if he had a cameo, wouldn't answer. He just like any, I think in his mind, at least it was honestly out of just respect for Pynchon's privacy that whatever his relationship to Pynchon is or was like, he just didn't want to impose himself onto Pynchon in his life. So I think it was genuinely out of like a certain care for Pynchon, but he just, he wouldn't answer anything about like his actual relationship to Pynchon. Yeah. I mean, I've heard him say in other interviews, you know, that someone is, this is a guy who spent his whole life doing everything he could to be out of the limelight. And there's something that just feels gauche about trying to pull him in as you and I are doing right now at like a couple of jackals. But uh, yeah, I think he's been very, very protective of that. But at the same time, the fact that he won't answer whether or not Pynchon is in the film, he's got to be in the film. Like, otherwise, he would just say, well, no, we would never do that. We would never we would never commit his visage to celluloid and risk him being recognized on the streets of New York City. We would never do that to him. They just he always just says, well, I'm not going to talk about that. We're not going to talk about that. And then just Josh Brolin is like, yeah, he's in the movie. He, no one, no one, no one knew it was him, but he's totally in the movie. So yes, I believe he's in the film. I don't. I certainly don't think it's this character. I think that he. I think that you can see him somewhere in the pool party sequence. And I have yet to figure out exactly who it is. I think I know who it is though. Um, then I'm gonna have to rewatch that scene. Like I like. The, I like this idea. There, there. There's like there's one guy that's by a grill, and I my eye keeps wandering back to this guy, and it's it's hard to describe. Just go back and watch. There's a very very languorous slow mo pan from left to right um, through the glass of the Wolfman's uh, rear wall of their home, and you see all of the police and most of the the LAPD in this film in that sequence. You can tell they're all played by LA extras because they're all in way too good a shape. And so they've, they've all got that L.A. extra look. And then there's just this one older fellow that just seems so out of place with the rest of them. That's my bet for 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 the pension cameo. Now, that said. <laughs> boy, that was that was a digression of digressions of digressions right there. Uh, we were talking about how the Harlingen the whole the whole Harlingen arc really does form the narrative backbone of this film. And it's once you, and I feel like that is actually once you kind of wrap your head around that, the film is so much less complex and seemingly difficult. I think where a lot of the difficulty comes in is trying to tell yourself this is a story about Mickey Wolfman and Doc Sportello and Shasta Faye Hepworth. This is about them. And this is about figuring out who who's got Mickey why do they have Mickey? Why was Shasta with Mickey? And what's Doc going to do about it? And that's, I really think that that's, that's actually the thing that's all, that's just, that's just background stuff. That's, no, it, it's wonderful and I love it and I love that romance. But, you know, I, I, I was speaking with a film critic for this show several episodes back, Fran Hoffner, and she told me that when she, she clocked out of this movie, basically, when, Mickey was found alive at Criscylodone, and then she looked at her watch and realized there was almost an hour of the film left. And she's like, no, no, no. Uh, the mystery solved. Why is there an hour of this movie left? I'm done. And I, but I think the reason for that is Mickey was never, even though it's the first scene, really, that's not the point of the movie. The point of the movie is the Harlingens, this American family. And I find their story so goddamn rich that... 
I think it could be the only case in the film and the film would still be fascinating. If this was all that Doc was investigating, if there's no Mickey stuff, if there's no missing neighborhood and replaced by Channel View estates and there's no dead uh, Nazi, none of if you got rid of all of that, this and had it just be this mystery alone, I think it is so fascinating to the point that you could even take out the Doc and Shasta love story. And the reason that I find it so compelling is, and here again, we have this, this doubling and this twinning is just as there is this deeply metaphorical mix of doc trying to find out as PTA told you in your interview, what went wrong, not just with his own love life, but with his country. Coy's doing the exact same thing. There's this similar metaphorical mix between personal and national missions with Coy. And it's in that way that, again, you could say these two men are twinned. Just as Coy joined the Golden Fang to try to not only get himself off smack, but also Hope, the mother of his child, he's trying to save another out-of-control mother, America, from destroying herself and her children like a junkie. And that's just, that's so fascinating to me that the both, that there are these two parallel tracks of plot and metaphor for these two men built in the exact same way. And also the fact that in reuniting the Harlingens, it's the one case that Doc actually solves. Like the other cases, <laughs> yeah, exactly. you know, they sort of like take care of themselves in a way. Like, I mean, there's a, there's <laughs> a scene late in the movie with, Shasta, where he's like, whatever happened with, uh, you know, did he make his way back? And sh even she kind of blows it off. And so it's like, the, what was actually the whole like motivating incident for the entire movie? Like, like all yeah, parties just sort it's of over. disregard. And so I, I like the idea that like, you know, Hope found Doc through some head shop or whatever, which I love the idea that that's how he like gets his jobs and that, you know, a, a solid referral. And that then, you know, he actually goes about that case. He finds Koi. He reunites the family. Like, you know, he actually, like, completes his mission. Like, he saw, he solves the case, which I, I there's something, again, the, the fact that he, like, is good at his job and, like, is a solid professional, even as flaky as he is, is something that I like very much about him as, as a character. And I think it's why there's even this extra ray of like hope and sort of backbone to the story of the Harlingens is because of the fact that like it works out like for everybody, like, like they're reunited, Doc did his job. Like it sort of all came together there. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to say something as grand eloquent as, you know, by saving them, they save America, uh, at least not by what I'm seeing on the nightly news, but there is something. And I, there's just something so special about that. And I keep falling back on, well, it's because it's such a small act. Because he risks his life for such a small act, that's what makes it special. That's what makes it heroic. And maybe that's what it is. But I do think that there is something about Coy Harlingen and his family. They really are the soul of this country. You know, I've spent... I spent so long thinking about this movie being about the wreckage and the end of America vis-a-vis -vis the wreckage and the end of a relationship with Doc and Shasta. But I think the more is this, the more this show goes on and the more I keep watching this damn movie, it feels less of 
a film about America at its end, but America at its crucial middle, where it could go either way. It's not over yet. It could just go either way. And that's where Coy and his family are at right now. They they could go either way. He could he could come back and he could find his family and he could save Amethyst from the little kid blues, which oh Jesus, what a perfect phrase that is. Or he'll just kind of waste away for vigilant California and be used as this, you know, trick snitch that just gets dropped in situation after situation, betraying all the people who were once the way he was and innocent the way he was. And Doc places himself in the middle of that, and he does become a hero by... He might not be able to make America go in the right direction. We, we don't know where that ends up. They're still in the fog at the end of the movie. But he's going to get this one American family going back in the right direction. And maybe that's enough. Maybe that's good enough for at least this one guy to do. And there's something so just so perfect and so sweet and so Anderson-esque about that. Like you said, P- uh, Pynchon couldn't even show that in the book. It's not even interested in that. But to me, that's the whole film is just building not to any kind of reconciliation between Doc and Shasta. It's about reconciling this one broken family that was broken by everything that was wrong with the America of their time. Well, and I think, again, you know, when thinking about Anderson's work, like I... I always fall back on the fact that he is such a proclaimed acolyte of both Robert Altman and Jonathan Demme. And that, yeah. you know, in some ways those seem like two somewhat incompatible filmmakers. I, you know, obviously like the cynicism of Altman, the humanism of Demi. And I think it's one of Anderson's real gifts is that he somehow can synthesize those things. I think inherent vice is a great example of that. And I think that scene where, you see the Harlingen's reunited, but the way that he shoots, it's that you're, you know, it's this long shot from across the street so that you see, you know, Doc in his car alone in the foreground, but then you see them in the house reunited in the background. That's just such a Demi-esque moment. There's something so beautiful about that, so simple about that, so human about that. And so I think that's one of those things where, you know, Anderson in adapting Pynchon's book, like, is even as much as it feels like a you know faithful adaptation, he still finds so many ways to synthesize it to his own ends and to really like interject himself like into that story. In a weird way, it's kind of emotionally unfaithful. Like it's it's on paper, it's faithful. Like I mean, it's got so many of those great lyrical chains of pensionese, and we have all the the alliteratively named pension characters, and yet there is an emotional branching off as, as, as we we've hit a couple of times, you know, Pynchon doesn't even really want to take the time for there to be an emotional moment at the end there. I mean, there's, there's an emotional ending to the book. It's, it's, it's a very kind of sour and melancholy emotional moment, but it is an emotional one, but it just seems that there is just this lunar pull towards humanism in PTA's work that he can't help the show. Like you said, that, not only does he give us the sweetness of the Harlingen family reuniting and you see Hope yelling and throwing her arms in the air and it's so goddamn sweet. Uh, you're going to make me cry, Mark. Um, but then, yeah, it also pulls back and it has that that sadness of Doc looking in the empty seat next to him where Shasta should be, but isn't because he made the choice not to save Shasta. He made the choice to save Koi. 
And I think that that also comes back to this scene. That choice also comes back to this scene because this is the sequence in which much, just like to Koi's horror, he discovers, Koi discovers that Vigilant California is just a wing of the Fang, you know, a group dedicated on keeping America trending downward into a death cycle. It's also in this scene here that Doc is horrified to learn that it was Shasta who brought Koi to the Golden Fang. It was that great line when, you know, Doc's like, you know, who who brought you here? Who got you into this? And Koi has that great line. He's like, you know, I learned, you know, from from my snitch days, essentially. He's, you know, people already know the the answer to the questions they ask. They just want to hear it from a voice outside their head, which is funny because he's always got the voice of sword lesion in his head. But, and he says, you need to talk to Shasta Fay. And going back to that track about this also being a portrait of masculinity, I do feel like in a weird way, as you said at the very beginning, Koi knows Doc. Koi knows the kind of man he is. And I almost feel like he's saying, you need to talk to your girl, man. She's not who you think she is. Like, you have this idea of this woman who needs saving, but she's actually kind of out there doing some shit that, that you need to be aware she's capable of this. Like she's not the construct that you've made her. And I think that the, a big part of doc's emotional arc is recognizing that he's created a, a fantasy version of her that once he realizes that's not who she is. And that was kind of on him for having been the person that built that up. He now just has to look at this empty spot in the car where he would expect that construct to be does that make sense or am i sounding oh like yeah I'm totally, no completely do i sound like i'm a totally stoned topanga house no. uh house partier right now no because that was definitely something i i wanted to talk about was i i at the end of that topanga party sit down when the way that koi says her name was such kind of emphasis but it's still kind of enigmatic and and it's like hard to understand exactly what he's saying but i think what the way you're saying it that like regarding what Koi had said about how, you know, I found a lot of people when they ask me things, they already know the answer to the question that that question, you know, that I guess the answer and the question is Shasta Fay. that yeah. it's the, the idea that like doc thinks he's really hung up on her. He has these visions of who he thinks she is. And also I think who he thinks he was when they were together. Exactly. That, that is something he like is really hung up on, on moving past. But then, where to like press forward a little bit like where does that leave him in those final moments of the movie when like he is in theory driving off into the fog with Shasta Faye but he has this really sort of like wounded look on his face and he kind of looks directly into the camera for a moment and it's like he gets the thing that he wanted but like is it the thing that he wanted or is it going to actually get him the things that he hoped it would you know achieve and in, in by getting them like is this even the girl he wants to be with anymore well boy <laughs> well not to jump too far ahead to the end of this podcast but yeah you know that that ending scene is something that i wrestle with that ending a lot um and what it exactly means but i do speaking you know to use a word that's popped up a few times in this episode reconciliation Koi and Amethyst and Hope are reconciled as a family. I don't know that Doc and Shasta will ever reconcile. But some part of I, I think that maybe what that ending scene is is Doc, who is kind of is a genuinely good man 
but has maybe done that that dude thing where he's projected a an idea of Shasta onto her, the idea of the woman he wants her to be, the woman who runs in the rain with him to Neil Young, and not the kind of woman who would run around with someone like Mickey Wolfman, or the kind of woman who would be willing to introduce someone like Coy Harlingen to the Golden Fang. And I think that maybe, maybe, maybe that that final scene in which after she's shown him kind of her darkness in their sex scene together, that scene where she says this don't mean we're back together. The fact that that's what he tells her in the final scene as if he's learned something from her. I kind of wonder if that scene is not a reconciliation between Doc and Shasta, but as a Doc reconciling who Shasta Faye is and at least coming to terms with recognizing her as the human she is and not the two to maybe more two dimensional version of the California hippie chick that he thought he was in love with. Does that make sense? Or do I still sound like a Topanga Canyon? No, that makes stoner? total sense. That makes total sense. And now I want to another bit in this, the Topanga scene that I have never quite been able to wrap my head around is the pizza last supper. <laughs> yeah. Oh hell. Yeah. Um, for all the deep dives we've been taking into this scene, I think we've been doing pretty well going spelunking into this very, very complex sequence. Uh, yeah, the, the you know, I know that there, I feel like there's something there. I don't know what the something is, but I do think that there are at least two different approaches to grasping or trying to interpret or trying to grasp what this could be. On one hand, you know, you read, Thomas Pynchon a lot. You you find him cramming all manner of pop culture, pop culture and pop cultural errata into his books. And you know, maybe this is as something as simple as that. It's just a it's a visual reference the way he has textual references in his books. You know, his books are littered with the lyrics to fake songs, bands, both real and unreal, films, actors. John Garfield, the great 1940s noir actor, um, he he constantly pops up in the novel as as Doc's favorite actor, and his films are constantly on TV. Uh, little things like that, and you could you could view this as simply that it's just a visual reference to a pretty pretty big ferment of our pop culture, which is uh, you know the Bible. Or or you know, and I haven't I haven't gone too deep with this, but you know, the Last Supper is supposed to be. Uh, the moment when Jesus told all his all of his apostles, you know, one of you guys is going to betray my ass. Like, one of you is going to betray me. And this is, in in a lot of ways, Inherent Vice is the story of betrayal. It's a story of a country betrayed. It's a story of love betrayed. It's a story of a family betrayed. Um, the Golden Fang, you know, a, a, a central, central piece of this entire scene is Koi explaining, like, these these fucking people betrayed me. They lied to me. You know, you see these hippies on the beach yelling at you, you know, and this and that, and you're like, whatever. But I thought, you know, these people really wanted to change America for the better. You know, he he, he said, you know, America, it's like, it's, uh, it's like this mother strung out on smack, uh, sending her children to die in the jungle. There's something, you know, desperately suicidal about that. And he's like, I wanted to fix that just the same way that he wanted to fix his own family and his, his, his addiction, his wife's addiction. 
and, and then it turns out, you know, he's basically, like, yeah, they fucking lied to me. It turns out they just want to keep us in line. It was a lie. And I, and they, that's the, it's the lie they told me to get them to join their ranks and keep everybody else in line around Nixon and, and the Fang's ultimate goals. And so, you know, I, I don't want, I don't know how far we, with this, we want to go if we want to say that Coy is like a Christ figure that's been betrayed. But the, this is a film that is rife with betrayal, whether it's the Wolfmans betraying one another and America betraying us or the Golden Fang betraying America. Doc's, perhaps per- perception that Shasta has betrayed him in some fashion. So I, it, it could, it could be all that. Or I could, I, I could also imagine PTA walking in the room right now, doing that big smile, his smacking his gun going, no, no, man. I just thought it was like a cool thing, you know, last supper. That's cool. Right. You know, I like last temptation of Christ. Throw something in there like that. You know, what's wrong? Who doesn't like a good reference? Right. I can see him doing something like that and just being like, no, it had nothing to do with any of that. You have any thoughts after after that long winded monologue? No, I mean mind? that's the thing. I, I I am not much of a biblical scholar, so I, I have I can't really relate it to like the actual Last Supper particularly. And yeah, it's always really kind of thrown me just because it's like it seems like such a goof, and and it kind of <laughs> doesn't really like have any other. There are no other moments like it in the movie, no, and no. that's why it really kind of sticks out. But then that's also what makes it so hard to like figure out. You know what I mean? I could almost see it being something as perverse as PTA going, okay, so we do need to have a beat. Uh, we do need to have a beat in which um, Dennis takes a picture of Koi. We got to get a picture of Koi at the the Topanga Canyon house. Wouldn't it be funny if we, we just have a bunch of hippies sitting like it's the last supper, but they're eating pizza? Like, we got to do the picture one way or another. Should we just go all out for the picture so it's something memorable? Because there is such a, an accretion of information and a sensory overload in this movie. We should probably, just the, the same way that he's cast all of these big name stars in these like two or three or five minute cameos, just so you can remember who they are, because you're not going to remember their name. You're not going to remember Sancho Smilex the first time. You're going to go, oh, it's Benicio del Toro. So maybe it was, it was literally that. Like, what's a famous picture that we can use? <laughs> so that people will remember that, oh, yeah, Dinas took this shot of, of because we have no idea, you know, in the film, it basically jumps from the picture being taken to dropping off Jade to visiting Bigfoot and showing him the picture. But, you know, who knows in the original cut if there was like a half hour of, of, of story wedged in between there. And we've got to remind the audience, don't you remember Dinas, the guy whose name reminds, whose name rhymes with penis? He, uh, he he took this picture in the house, and so they maybe they gave it a famous framework so it would stick in our brains. Or again, I swear to God, I, I can imagine PTA going, no, no, it wasn't that at all. It just seemed funny. That's all. But that those are my guesses for you. Those are my, my myriad of guesses as to what the hell is going on in that scene. In which also, strangely, Nixon's voice overlays that entire sequence. I can't make out what he's saying, but you hear his voice just wafting throughout the house. That's all I got. Well, well, because there is that, because there is, and again, this is something that's like alluded to more in one of the deleted scenes, the the, than in the actual trailer. There's a passage, like in the Topanga Party section of the book, there's a passage that's specifically about these sort of like older men who like don't really belong, but who like over time, you know, kept showing up at young people parties and were sort of like money men and influencers, and they're sort of like muscle men. That there was this feeling that there was like 
sort of like backroom skullduggery like happening, yeah. even at a funky, fun Topanga stoner party. Doc, Doc was re- recognizing more and more of these men, these parties and these get togethers, these concerts. Exactly. And so that I think that that, you know, the idea, the reason that you're hearing like Nixon throughout that is to like allude more strongly to the idea that there's even at something like this, that should be this like hip fun party. There's this like much darker, you know, influence happening. Yeah. I mean, it's your, your, your answer is as good as mine on this one. This is as good as mine. Before we wind things up, there's one last thing I wanted to mention, and that is the little kid blues. I just wanted to throw a shout out to what a perfect piece of phraseology. It is so evocative and sad and melancholic and reflective of just life and child. Like it never I love that the movie never explains what it is and you know exactly what what Coy's talking about when he says they get that sometimes. Like, you know exactly what that is. And I've read interviews where Anderson even said that that was one of the main reasons he chose this book. Because he could have done Mason and Dixon. He could have done Vineland. But there was that line, Little Kid Blues. And there's something so special about that. And there is this, it's like Doc understands it immediately too. Because it becomes that thing that he's got to prevent above all else. There's heroin being flown around all over the place. There's a war in Vietnam. Shasta's missing. But... When all of this is happening, dead Nazis, angry cops, when he's sitting alone at his house, or maybe or maybe not alone, but when he's sitting in his house and Sorleesh says, what's going to keep you up at night when this is all over? It's, he says it's the little kid blues. That's, what's, that's what he's not going to be able to forgive himself for if he, if he allows it to stand. And I love that. I love that. I love that so much. And I just wanted to throw out, there was another interview that PTA did at the time. God forgive me, Mark, for referring to any interview other than yours. But there was one where he uh, people kept asking him, you know, why this book? You know, why why Inherent Vice, which is kind of seen as the least of Pynchon's novels. You know, if you're not going to do Gravity's Rainbow, why are you even showing up kind of question? And Anderson's response was, well, I've said, you know, this is the easiest one. But what really appealed to me was the thought that Pynchon's in his late 70s now, and he's still harboring regret and pain about this era. He's still looking back, and he's still pissed off. That's worth something. And the publicist comes back into the room and says, you know, one more question. You get one more question. So the journalist says, you know, in response to PTA saying, that's worth something. He's like, what do you hope this is worth? And Anderson thought about it, and he starts talking elliptically about you know, how families reuniting will make people vaguely hopeful and about how it feels to really miss people and how he hopes that inherent vice will make people laugh. Uh, but then ultimately he goes back to the original text and he just says, pension talks about those little kid blues, the haunt doc. That's such a great line, man. And I just, there's something about that, both the, and I think that goes back to the chaos and the logic and the logic and the chaos to make a decision to adapt a novel, to spend two and a half years adapting and casting and filming and editing. There is a logical chaos to doing all of that because you read in a book once the phrase, those little kid blues, and to build an entire film around that phrase and around one hero trying to put a stop to it. That, that, that is a fucking reason to love this movie, in my opinion. 
I don't know about you. Uh, I mean, I, I think you put it quite rightly. Yeah, I totally agree. <laughs> on that note, I have to say, thank you so much for coming on today and for carrying me through this episode because this scene straight up terrifies me because I had no idea how to talk about it. And so bless you, bless you, bless you for being the Koi Harlingen to my doc or the doc <laughs> to my Koi Harlingen and whispering me through this horror. Before you go, tell everyone listening where they can find you and your stuff. Uh, yeah. The, um, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Indie Focus, and then uh, you can find my work online at latimes.com. Again, thank you for coming tonight. Talk to me about this movie in the middle of a pandemic. There's, I know there's bigger things to worry about right now than Inherent Vice, but I appreciate you doing it with me. And I thank everyone for listening and hope that you'll join us next time when myself and a very special guest are going to get machine gunned with the rat-a-tat-tat-tat-tat delivery of more and more and more exposition from the majestically motor-mouthed Jade. The little kid blues, man. If ever there was a reason to keep on keeping on as Pinchon's little parenthesis of light gets smaller and smaller, it's to fight the good fight against those little kid blues for as long as possible. For the world. For a country. For a family. Or maybe just for one little kid that deserves better. We know Doc can pull that off. But can we? That's the question, all right. I guess we'll see what we can see next time on Increment Vice.